All right, well, let's celebrate God's goodness and what he did. What a wonderful day it was uh, for our church family, and we just praise God for what he's doing. And then uh, last night, uh, some of us had the privilege of celebrating the baptism of uh, four members of our church family, uh, and you'll be hearing some of their stories in the uh, weeks to come, and so we just praise God for how he is at work. And then in addition to all this, uh, we celebrate that we have 32 uh, new members who are joining our church family. So these are uh, individuals who have completed our membership process uh, and, and have come to join this church family. And I'm going to read uh, the names of these 32 people. And if you're in the room, if you would stand uh, whenever I call your name or remain standing uh, until the end of calling uh, of those names. Uh, joining our church family are Matthew and Amy Boyd. David, Angela, Noah, and Levi Deitch, Debbie DeFrancesca, Tom Farmer, Daniel and Christian Franklin, Mercedes Fleming, Stephen Kaufman, Jamie Lorenz, Silvano and Adrian Mora, Jan Omley, Jeremy, Laura, Drew, Reese, and Kate Putman, Thomas, Lee, and Nelson Schmidt, Joy Shaner, Jack, Bridget, Chloe, and Courtney Skiles, David and Sandy Smith, and Seth Vaughn. Church fam, if you rejoice in these that have joined our church, if you would just let them know that. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. And really, it is a great time to be a part of our church family. And I hope uh, that you just realize as a member of our church what a privilege it is to be a part of what God is doing here. And let me just say to you, if you're visiting with us today, or maybe you're watching us online and checking us out, uh, that we are incredibly grateful to have you as our guest. And we would love to know who you are, and we would love to help you learn how you can get connected into the life of this church. If you'll text the word CONNECT, to the number that you see on the screen, one of our team, team members will follow up with you this week. Also, we have our team members at the welcome tables and the welcome desk on your way out. You can stop by there and learn more how you can get involved in life groups or serving or some way in our church. All right, well, hopefully you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 11, uh, where we are gonna camp out for the next three weeks. Before I get started today, let me say thank you to Pastor Justin and our administrator, Steve Renna, for teaching uh, the past two weeks so I can enjoy some much-needed time with my family, and thank you for doing an incredible job of bringing the word. So our time in Mark 11 is going to conclude on Easter Sunday with the question of Jesus' authority from the religious leaders of Jesus' day. That's only two weeks away. So church, uh, invite people uh, to join you for Easter and uh, hopefully you've already signed up to serve us in some way on that morning. And if you haven't already, please do that now. Uh, so that's only two weeks away. But next week, we're gonna look at in depth verses 15 through 19 when Jesus clears out the temple which occurred on Monday of that week, Passion Week. As Passion Week begins, the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom come into the center of earthly religious life. And although we are going to be studying each of these three incidents separately over the next three weeks, they really belong together and, and, and they help explain one another. That's why we read some of them together this morning. So I think that over the next three weeks, you'll find yourself kind of moving back and forth uh, in the different things we're talking about and zooming in and out of Mark chapter 11 as you seek to think them out. Now today, what we're looking at is something interesting that Jesus does as a way of teaching the disciples about the kingdom of God. 
Now, sometimes in Bible interpretation, the text is confusing because we make it confusing. So a lot of people are confused about whether or not Christians should be part of a church or really need to be a part of a church. And the reason this is, is because people don't want to serve and people don't want to give and people don't want to be held accountable. Or maybe people have had bad experiences. But the reality is, it is very clear from the scriptures that we are to be connected to a local group of believers who are trying to do God's will together. Sometimes people get confused about the spiritual gifts and about uh, how important traditions are. And the reality is that the confusion comes from us elevating those things as a source of spiritual pride, but those things are actually pretty clear in the scriptures. People say that the Bible's confusing when it comes to issues of sexuality and marriage and gender, but the reality is it's very clear on those issues and we just make it confusing because we wanna justify our behavior or justify the behavior of people that are around us. And so often the Bible is confusing to understand because we make it confusing to understand. But there are some texts that we really do have to slow down for. And we really need to do some digging into other places of the Bible and maybe into the culture of the original audience to fully understand the text. That's the case with what we're looking at today. And so I'm gonna do my best to help the meaning and the application of this text be clear to us. Um, that's why today's sermon is titled, Why a Fig Tree in Jerusalem 2,000 Years Ago Matters to a Person in Niceville, Florida Today. I don't think anyone's ever titled their sermon that as far as I know, so I feel kind of original. Now the reason that I might be able to make this clear for us today or, or do a decent job of that is because I've had time to dig into this and to work at articulating this. It's not because I'm smarter than anyone in this room or because I'm more spiritual than anybody in this room. As Alistair Begg would say, my goal is not for you to say, how did he get that, but to say, I see how he got that. So let's start by looking into the text and making a few observations. In Mark chapter 11, verse 11, it says that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, Matthew mentions that it was morning when they go into Jerusalem and they go into the temple. And we'll see more next week regarding what Jesus sees in the temple and why he doesn't like what he sees in the temple. But it's kind of important to note that he is going into the temple during the day as we think about what's about to happen. So they head back to Bethany for the night. Matthew tells us that Jesus was lodging there during the first part of this week. Verse 12 then tells us on the following day, when they came from Bethany, <clears throat> he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So Jesus sees a fig tree that is in leaf and and apparently thinks, I'd like a fig. And it was going to be a teaching opportunity, but it would make sense that he was hungry at this time. And that day, they typically did not eat the first meal of the day till mid-morning. So I guess you could say the Jewish people invented brunch. Okay, all right. I thought that was funny. Anyway, um, so, so it does make sense that he would be hungry. To me, I love Jesus, but it doesn't make sense that he would want to eat a fig because those are gross. Um, 
I don't know what it was about the late 80s, early 90s. Maybe it was that um, our parents thought like, because there was fruit in them, they were healthy, or maybe they were always cheap because they're disgusting. My, my parents would always pack fig newtons in my lunchbox and they were disgusting. The only ones that tasted good were the ones that were made with apple or cinnamon or weren't actually Fig Newtons, basically. But anyway, Fig season is in June, which is more than a month away from when this is taking place. Now, commentaries differ on whether this specific tree should have had fruit based on its appearance at this time or not. But it is clear that Jesus is using the fig tree <coughs> to make a point about being dressed but not having fruit. Can Nate bring me water? Sorry, that's super awkward of one of you. <laughs> not the empty bottle. Thank you. We have everything well polished. Thanks, Nate. Love you, man. All right. So hold on. Sorry. Anyway, it's that time of year, y'all. My bad. Okay. So it's clear that Jesus is using the fig tree to make a point about being dressed but not having fruit. So I think the first thing that we need to make note of this morning is that you can have the appearance of being fruitful and be fruitless. You can have the appearance of being fruitful and be fruitless. We can look like we are fruitful, but upon closer investigation, actually be fruitless. And based on what Jesus says, this is not acceptable to God. Look at verse 14. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now Matthew tells us that the tree withers at once, and we'll talk about the tree withering in just a moment. Now, at first glance, it sounds like Jesus is really angry at this tree. And there are actually some scholars who use this and other places to imply or show that Jesus is explicitly a sinner. To say that Jesus was displaying impulsive anger in the same way we display it when we experience bad customer service or when we're dealing with spring break traffic on the Emerald Coast. But it is not legitimate for us to conclude that Jesus is acting in such a way. Why is this not legitimate? Well, first of all, because of everything else we know about Jesus. It would be inconsistent with the character of Jesus to take Mark chapter 11 and what we see Jesus do and think that he is displaying anger in the same way that we display anger in the instances that I referred to. And additionally, when the Old Testament uh, talks about the fig tree, it often compares the fig tree and the vine to the people of Israel, and they're routinely used as uh, metaphors of their status with God. And so what is taking place is not really about frustration about the lack of fruit on the tree, but it's a teaching moment. And Jesus' words are actually a calm declaration, not a rash cursing. And so if we don't impose our need to justify our own feelings and, and identify closer with Jesus as a sinner because it makes us feel good, then we can come away understanding that. And so Jesus and the disciples then head to the temple for that day. And we're gonna cover that next week. But remember that Jesus confronts the religious leaders of Israel regarding their departure from the purpose of the temple and the purity of the purpose of the temple. So with that in mind, we fast forward to the next morning as they return from, excuse me, to Jerusalem from Bethany once again. Verse 20 tells us, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered 
and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. They're on the same path. And they see this withered fig tree. Again, Matthew tells us that it happened instantly, but we know that the disciples see it now. Peter doesn't always get it, but he gets it here. And they're amazed that Jesus declared that the tree would no longer have fruit and it's completely withered already. And Jesus, still trying to use the fig tree to teach them, says, verse 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now these verses have been read and applied out of context and therefore the meaning of them have been distorted and have been not captured by many. Let's be clear. Jesus is saying this in the context of Peter's amazement that the fig tree has withered so quickly at the command of Jesus. And considering this, Jesus emphasizes what God can do through his people. Matthew states this clearly. Matthew 21, verse 21. Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Not only can you pronounce God's judgment on a fig tree and it wither, but you can say to a mountain for it to be thrown into the sea and it will happen. This mountain is the Mount of Olives, but Jesus is clearly speaking figuratively. Jesus is saying, God empowers faith. God empowers faith. God wants to work in and through his people. Before we start talking about what this means for us, there's one more aspect from our text today that we cannot overlook. In fact, overlooking it will cause us to miss the whole point of why Jesus does what he does here and period. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Verse 26 is actually included in the King James Version and a few other translations, and it's omitted from the ESV and other modern translations because Verse 26 is not in most of our better ancient manuscripts. Verse 26 in the King James Version says, but if ye ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. It's redundant language from Jesus' teaching on prayer in Matthew 6. It's still accurate, but it's not accurately written here in the manuscripts that we have, the Greek manuscripts that we have. Verse 25 does say in this prayer, the special thing where you as a disciple can ask and receive forgive. And he says forgiveness is connected to your faith. And the last observation I want us to make from this text this morning is this. Forgiveness is central to faith. Forgiveness is central to faith. Throughout the scriptures and the many encouragements to see the power of God at work in our lives is the reality that forgiveness is a huge part of our faith. So let's recap. Jesus emphasized fruit, he emphasized faith, and he emphasized forgiveness. 
Now, I'm gonna talk about what each of those things mean for us, but before I do, I need you to help, help you understand a little more what Jesus is saying here in Mark 11. Because Jesus is declaring something about Israel. There are a few things I want you to consider. The first is this. Jesus consistently taught in parables. So Jesus would use stories. He would use illustrations to explain what he was trying to get across. So Jesus taught in parables, and he's using this fig tree as an illustration here to emphasize a point. Another thing I would like you to consider is that the fig tree is compared to Israel in the Old Testament. Hosea 9.10 says, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Zechariah 3.10 says, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And Micah 7, 1 says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit, that is the fig tree, has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. So Jesus would teach in parables, and in addition to this, Israel was all, uh, excuse me, the fig tree was often used as an illustration for Israel. And the third thing I'd like you to consider is our context. We have the triumphal entry, as we call it, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Jesus goes into the temple. He sees what's happening in the temple, and he clears out the temple. And then also Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Luke says in 1941 through 44 that when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you, your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So he's talking about God coming to visit Israel and the judgment that would come upon Israel. And this would come true. Jerusalem would be destroyed. The temple would be destroyed. And I could spend a lot of time talking about this, but I just want to say one point to help you see what Jesus is saying, and that is this. Jesus is proclaiming the end of time for the nation of Israel as the means through which God's kingdom multiplies. You can put that on the screen. Jesus is proclaiming the end of time for the nation of Israel as the means through which God's kingdom multiplies. In the Old Testament, we see that God is using the nation of Israel as the vehicle through which all the nations will be blessed. There are many scriptures in the New Testament that clarify a shift in the vehicle that God is using and the original intent that God had in using the nation of Israel. Romans 11, verse one through six is just one of those, where Paul says this, I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See, what Paul is clarifying here and really upon the teaching of Jesus, is that throughout all of God's history with Israel, God did not always preserve everyone who was a part of the nation of Israel, but he used the nation of Israel to preserve a remnant of people who were people of faith, who believed in God for righteousness. And so what Paul's saying then is he's saying, God isn't rejecting all of those who come from Israel by saying I'm not gonna use Israel in the same way anymore, but he's still calling and saving the remnant of those who had faith, of which Paul is one of those. You see, from the beginning of God calling Abraham, who is the father of Israel, he said, I will make you a, a blessing to all the nations. The plan was not one nation. The plan was multiple nations. And in the day of Jesus, Jesus is cursing the fig tree. Jesus will change, clear out the temple because Israel is not that anymore. But God, tell, excuse me, Jesus tells Peter, but I will still bring forth fruit. And so what we need to understand is this. In spite of the discouragement that might be felt by the immediate context about the nation of Israel, God's plan has always been to have a kingdom of all nations, and he uses the church to continue this plan. God has always been about a people of all nations for himself. That's what he told Abraham. That's what he tells us is our future in Revelation. And God is using the church, and Jesus says to his disciples in the Great Commission, that I've given you authority. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is using his church to accomplish this plan. Okay, so what is the relevance of a fig tree in Jerusalem to me in Niceville, Florida? or wherever you may live. And I wanna revisit the observations we've made and talk about what they mean for us. The first is this. You can have the appearance of being fruitful and be fruitless. You can have the appearance of being fruitful and be fruitless. Israel was still doing a lot of the things that the Old Testament prescribed for them to do. They still had a temple, but yet they had missed the heart of God. The religious leaders had missed the heart of God. You can have church buildings. You can do religious things and still miss the heart of God. You can dress up on Sundays or Saturdays and be a whitewashed tomb. You can do church, whether it's low church or high church, informal or formal, and miss God. You can put on a front that you are a godly person. People can think that you love God on social media. But Jesus doesn't care how many times you forward that thing that says you don't love Jesus if you don't forward this. If you don't move forward, in obedience with God. You see, Christians, or at least professing Christians, can often believe that if we say we love God, maybe even if we do a few things that make it official that we love God, but don't actually get to know God, 
and don't actually seek to have a relationship with God, that we actually indeed are a believer. It's like marrying someone contractually and then being unfaithful to them and not seeking to learn how to love them. That's not marriage. That's a contract. And a lot of people approach God in this way. And we're not really concerned with what the Bible says about being fruitful. Dr. Edmund Ebert says to be fruitless is to be lifeless. Jesus in John chapter 15 says, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Jesus was very much concerned, if you study his teaching, with fruit of Christ-likeness, with the fruit of the Spirit of God. So here are some things that I would warn you of to evaluate whether or not you are fruitful. Do not mistake religious rituals for a real relationship. Do not mistake having godliness as a part of your routine for actually being someone who hears and obeys God. Don't mistake the approval of men for the acceptance of God. You can find a group of people who affirm your version of Christianity. We should not primarily be concerned with whether or not we have the affirmation of people for our version of Christianity, but whether or not we are affirmed by God in our seeking Christ. Don't mistake a short-lived feeling for a life-changing conviction. Whether it's traditionalism or more of a progressive version of Christianity, we often find these traditional things, these traditional elements, and these more modern elements, and we say, they make me feel a certain way. And we don't want to admit it, but so much is tied to emotion and feeling rather than truth and substance. And we must always test our emotions with the truth and the substance of what God's word says about how we should live our lives and what doctrine is. And so what I would encourage you to do to evaluate whether or not you're fruitful is this. Know the word. Study the word. Listen to the word. And let it inform your faith. And then have people in your life who know the word and study the word who will hold you accountable. Constantly evaluating, am I fruitful or am I just appearing to have fruit? Another implication of this text for us is from our second observation, that is this, God empowers faith. God empowers faith. In verse 22, Jesus answered them and said, have faith in God. Then Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, there's actually a strong link here between the absence of prayer in the temple, which we will see in verse 17, that the temple has now become defunct as a place of prayer, and there's a connection between that and Jesus now giving instructions to his disciples so that they might be a people of prayer. They might become a community of prayer, and that's his desire for the church. And that the prayer that we as God's people, that we exercise, will be the prayers of believing faith and not heartless routine prayers that have been a part of what was going on in the temple. Now, I have to confess that I tend to not emphasize the way I should passages such as what we just read because of an overreaction and an overcorrection to what most people mean, or at least what is popularized when we talk about having faith and moving mountains. Because what a lot of people mean is faith in ourselves and self-worship and seeing God's empower as a means to us getting what we want in our lives. And so because of that, I don't emphasize the way I should the faith of a believer. But look at what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I strongly believe that what God, Jesus is telling us to do is to pray about the things that we have heard God say he will do in our lives. So prayer does not start with my will. Prayer starts with God's will. And then me yielding my will to God's will and believing that God's will will happen in my life. When Jesus teaches us about prayer, he often talks about, and in the Lord's Prayer, he tells us to call God our Father. So we think of this father-child relationship where we might come to God with our petty, incorrect views of what our life should be, but we need to take a posture of listening to our Father and what his will for our life is. Whenever the word faith is used in the Bible, in the New Testament, almost every time, it's a Greek word, pisteo, which means a uniting of our will. It's a trusting in God. So it's believing God and his word. Alistair Begg says, those who trust God for the right things in the right way may have confidence that God will always make the right move. Our faith then grows as we know what God says. And so we are praying for God's will to happen in our lives in a powerful way. Now he says not to doubt, but the word doubt, the Greek word there, means to make a distinction. It doesn't mean don't question or don't struggle. Douglas Moo says doubt here refers to a conflict of loyalties that disturb the purity of the faith. He's saying when you doubt, 
you aren't sure that God's will is best because there's something else that you want that causes you not to be sure that God's will is right for you. In James' letter, he says, for the person that uh, but doubts must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded is a Greek word, dipsychos, which means double-souled. It means you have a divided heart. He's saying those who really don't want God's will aren't praying right. When you pray, you must want God's will. And so the conflict then of a believer's confidence in God's power is not a result of God's unfaithfulness. It is a result of our undivided hearts. The conflict of a believer's confidence in God's power is not a result of God's unfaithfulness. It is a result of our divided hearts. And so what we must do in prayer is say, I trust God that what he wants for me is what's best. And he'll deal with our, our human-centered doubts that that will happen. But we must have a pure mind and a pure heart in seeking him. Okay, the last thing is this. Forgiveness is central to faith. Forgiveness is central to faith. Verse 25 says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is central to Christianity. In Matthew chapter 18, when Peter asked Jesus how much he should forgive, Jesus says 70 times seven. Now he doesn't mean after the 490th time of your husband not doing that thing he asked you to do, you can, for, you can stop forgiving him on 491. His point is to use common language of that day to say we don't count. There's a parable that Jesus gives of an unforgiving servant, a servant that was forgiven of a debt that he can never repay, a lifetime of debt. And then someone owes him a couple days of debt and he won't forgive that person. And he uses this to help us understand how we don't understand the forgiveness of God if we aren't willing to forgive people. And in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, it says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, if we've not grasped the forgiveness of God in our life, and perhaps we're not willing to forgive. But if we have realized the debt that we've been forgiven by God, then we become people who are full of grace and full of forgiveness. You see, we're talking about fruit. And the fruit of God's people is grace. The fruit of God's people is mercy. The fruit of God's people is forgiveness because that's the gospel. And the gospel takes root in our hearts, and that's the fruit it brings forth. Yesterday, one of our students came to me and was talking to me about a difficult person in his life. And I appreciate the, the, the courage and the boldness of this student to just come to pastor and just ask, what would be your advice for me? And, and indeed, the person that he's dealing with is difficult and uh, I validate that. But even as we talked about it, this young man admitted 
that he sees that it's a struggle for him to have the kind of grace that he should have with people. And I, and I praise God for that because we should see that in our lives when we struggle to have grace with people. And if you don't see a, a reason to show others tremendous grace, then perhaps you have not grasped the tremendous grace of God. If you don't see a reason to show others tremendous grace, then, then I don't know that you've grasped the tremendous grace of God. Because when we realize the debt that we've been forgiven by God, it changes how we view the world that is around us. Now let me make something clear. Trust and grace are not the same thing. If you have a past and you've done things in your past that... Um, are criminally bad that might disqualify you from working with children. I want you to know that we believe you if you're repentant, but you still can never work in our children's or student ministry because it would be unwise for us to let you do that. It's not that we don't have grace for you. It's just that given your past, there's a level of trust and people may have hurt you in your life and you're not gonna be vulnerable with them. And I understand that, but it doesn't mean you don't show them grace and forgiveness and believe that God may indeed have changed their heart. Because we realize in our life, when God has forgiven us of our sins, what he can do in other people's lives. And then Christianity should be, should be this realization of that power in our hearts overflowing into the lives of those in our home and those beyond. Israel, was obsessed with being a political body. And they, I believe, were bitter about what they'd experienced over the past several centuries from the Romans, from the Syrians and others, and ultimately bitter towards God because they didn't have the culture they wanted. And because of that, they neglected the central reason that God had chosen them, and that was to spread the message of God's kingdom. In church, when we look around in our world and maybe even our community and the people we're around, we're tempted to look at people and get into a cultural war instead of first and foremost fighting the spiritual battle for the souls of men and women. And the primary way that God brings about the reconciliation of people to himself is through those he has given the ministry of reconciliation because we implore to them on our, on our behalf, be reconciled to God as we have been. And so we must view the world through this lens. I may have shared this before, but when I was talking to this young man yesterday, I told him this story that happened to me a few years back. My wife, when I'm going to Destin, tends to say, oh, you're going to Destin? Here I have returns at the store. Take those returns to Old Navy. In fact, that happened this past Friday night. But several years ago, on another night, much like this week, um, she sent me to Old Navy to make some returns. Now, do I actually return them for the right value? Not normally, but you know, I do my best. And so I was in Old Navy, and she said, go and look for a shirt for one of our kids at the same time. And so as I did this, I uh, was walking around, and there was this little girl, and she was being obnoxious. She was running around. She was loud, crying, then laughing. And, and um, you know, it really didn't faze me, not that my children are that obnoxious, but I have six kids in my house, so loud kids don't bother me at all. Um, and so, you know, I just kind of noticed it. Then this other lady, it bothered her. 
And, you know, she's like some people, some people and their kids and don't know how to raise their kids and this generation, you know, millennials. And I'm like, hey, I'm kind of a millennial. But anyway, um, and then this third person, this other woman walks up to this little kid and says, is something wrong? She says, I can't find my mommy and daddy. And it just hit me in that moment that the reason the girl was acting the way she was acting is because she was lost. And when we see people, when we see a culture that acts in a certain way, instead of being annoyed or maybe indifferent to the behavior, God has called us to say, what can I do for you? And when they come to the position in the place where they realize they're lost, we help them understand that there's a heavenly father that is waiting for them to turn to him any moment. That's the gospel. And that's what the gospel should be doing in and through us. May that be what defines the fruit of this people of God who meet here this morning. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your grace. And I pray that if there's somebody here that they know they're lost. God, unlike the parents who I don't know where they were in that moment, when we realize we're lost, we realize that you're right there behind us ready for us to grab your hand. And you have clearly demonstrated the depth of your love and the depth of your commitment to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Who, where Christ demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I pray that if that's someone today that they might run to the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. And for your people who have been forgiven of our debt, it's been nailed to the cross, it's been delivered. God, may we be people who carry that message, who walk in that message of your grace every day. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.